Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. I have been thoroughly enjoying J.Y. Yang's Tensorit series of novellas, so I wanted to chat to them about blending science fiction and fantasy, non-binary representation, and using different structures and forms across a series. But I can't possibly do them justice, so J.Y., would you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Hi, um, everyone. My name is J.Y. Yang, and I am a non-binary queer SFF writer from Singapore, and yeah, like what Megan said, I'm the author of the Tensorate series of novellas, of which there are four, and they're uh, the sort of like Asian-inspired science fantasy novellas from Tordorcom Publishing. The first ones were released in uh, 2017, Black Tides of Heaven and the Red Threads of Fortune. And Black Tides of Heaven has been sort of nominated for like a bunch of the of awards like the Hugo and the Nebula. So um, I guess a bunch of people like them enough. Other than that, I'm kind of uh, working on my first novel right now and um, sort of defying like the patriarchy by existing, I guess, (laughs) on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. (laughs) That is an awesome way to put it. I love it. The Tensorate series, you've, you've got like a real blend of sci-fi and fantasy in there. I mean, did you set out to write a particular one? Did you have like a real mix in mind from the beginning? Um, I, well, the thing is for me that I am actually more of a science fiction reader and writer, which like most people, a lot of people don't believe because they mostly know me from my Tensorate series. Uh, which is very, very fantasy, but I was actually a very late um, reader when it came to fantasy. I literally only started reading um, when the Lord of the Rings movies came out, and that was kind of my gateway to fantasy. So, like, I tend to be more of a sci-fi writer. When I started off writing um, fiction, I I tended to write more, like, cyberpunk stuff, but I wanted to write um, a fantasy sort of series, because at that point, I was, like, you know, I was playing all these, like, video games that were, like, fantasy video games, like Dragon Age, which I loved a lot, and I I realized that, like, fantasy can be really, really fun, because you get to do all these strange things with world building if you're doing, like, a secondary world fantasy, but at the same time, I'm also like a science nerd. Like, you know, I, I went to school for science. My first job out of college was like in a research laboratory. Like I was a legit scientist at some point of time. So like my world building tends to sort of reflect that. Um, so, you know, I, I created some of this, this magic system that was kind of somewhat based on scientific principles except that I kind of like made it made it magic so it's fantasy um so that's how I came kind of ended up with a lot of science fantasy world building which I realize is kind of like my wheelhouse because like even in other things that I've been working on like uh even though it's like you know space opera I will have like bits of magic and stuff that you can't really explain in it I guess I just like kind of blending genres because like you know it's it's more interesting to me (laughs) that's fair enough I mean I've never really understood why we had to have such you know harsh boundaries between the two because there are a lot of crossovers I mean I grew up watching Star Wars 
So, and Star Wars, like, what is Star Wars? Is that magic? Is that science? I. Star Wars is definitely one of the very sort of like foundational um, influences for me. Like, you know, I got into it when I was a kid and it was like the first thing that I loved of science fiction and fantasy that it was kind of like my gateway to other more like hard science fiction um, series like Star Trek and things like that. But yeah, I mm. mean, it was, it was always, I guess, something that I was very interested in. Yeah. And, and, and as to the question as to why there are such like harsh boundaries i feel like a lot of it is just because publishing tends to do all these for book selling purposes to tell audiences at the shorthand this is what you're gonna get it's spaceships or like wizards and and i'm like what about both why don't we have both spaceships and wizards i i feel <laughs> like i do feel like um that these boundaries do blur especially now that you know you have a lot of self-publishers a lot of indies and 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 things like that where you I guess you have more space for experimentation and, and sort of like doing stuff outside like the very established genre lines. You talked about having the publishing having very strict lines of delineation. Did you come across any pushback then from yours? Because yours don't have that real strict line. Well, you see, that's that's kind of an interesting uh, um, subject because I wouldn't, I'm not going to say it's pushback. It was a completely different problem in that um, in order for my books to be marketed, they were labeled as silk punk, which was like not a label that I had heard of before. And that was basically because it had been invented like the year before by Ken Liu to describe his books. Uh, And then my editor, Carl, was like, we're going to make this a genre now. (laughs) And I was like, Okay, fine. Okay. Like that's kind of like the marketing language that my books went out with, and since then, everyone asked me, "It's like, why did you decide to set out? You know, like, why did you set out deciding to write so punk?" And I was like, "Kind of didn't. <laughs> um, it was sort of a label that was put on the books after the fact for marketing purposes. Uh, so it's kind of like the opposite in that, like, a genre was found for me in." And I, I think the good thing about working with, I think, Torcom Publishing is that um, they're very experimental because it's sort of like a small experimental imprint. They're like, they they use it as sort of like a, a proving ground for like different yeah. ways of publishing. For example, like releasing both of the novellas, uh, Red Threads and Black Tides on the same day. That was also ex- an experiment. <laughs> um, I think it went quite well, but... Well, I prefer that because so much of publishing, you know, they don't take risks and it's really nice to see publishers actually bothering to take risks and try something different and test the waters. And we're never going to get anything new or interesting or really groundbreaking unless these publishers take risk. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I completely agree. And I'm, 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 I'm like really glad that Porter Cotton Publishing exists because I think they, they publish a lot of really, really interesting stuff and a lot of stuff that I really love. And I'm not just saying that because they published my novellas. I just say that, saying that because I love a lot of the stuff that they've published. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I agree. I completely agree. I, I really enjoy a lot of their novellas. I think they're fantastic. Yeah, the novels too, I think. like They have more room to experiment, I think, and take on like slightly riskier stuff. And basically they publish so many queer books. Like All their books are like something yes. like queer, which is like so amazing to me and I love it. 
One thing that is interesting about your series is obviously the the sort of Asian inspired aspects, which given your background makes sense, but that is kind of very new to the area or at least not well represented. Mm-hmm. Were there particular things that you wanted to make sure you were seeing represented in the, these genres that you loved or anything that you really wanted to get across? Like specifically for this series, the world building, one thing I really wanted to do is to have an actual Asian like elemental series because um, uh, elemental world building. Because like I remember one of the things that really annoyed me about Avatar um, The Last Airbender is that it's supposedly Asian, but there are four mm-hmm. elements and they're the wrong ones. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, nope. <laughs> So I was very specific, like when I was doing the world building, I'm just like, I will use the actual like Asian elemental system in my world buildings. And I want to see that like in in the world building. So like, you know, people will actually realize that, oh, it's actually like there are five elements and they're kind of weird. (laughs) Yeah, I think that was kind of one of the things like, I mean, for me, I feel like I as, as a person who's, like, Asian and growing up in Asia, I actually did spend, like, my my childhood kind of surrounded by a lot of, like, of, like you know, Chinese mythology and stuff like that. So, like, mm-hmm. I never really felt that I lacked for representation in that sense, You if you know what I mean. I wasn't, like, starving yeah. for, for this content. Uh, it was more like... This is a thing that I liked when I was a very small child, like which is basically kind of like the journey to the West, kind of um, weird magic stuff, and and emperors and stuff like that. And I kind of want to merge it with stuff that I like now as a as a nerdy grown up. Um, and so I, I kind of like mixed bits of like Jurassic Park and Dragon Age and and things like that, all in sort of like this big messy gooey melting pots of world building which which is like basically i just wanted to have fun when i was writing it and i did uh so uh, mission accomplished i guess <laughs> but that's how it kind of like came came together more or less that's awesome so one thing that i often hear in the conversations and i would have to caveat this with obviously that i am white and western and come from a very privileged area and all this kind of thing and I'm very steeped in the western culture around science fiction and fantasy Mm -hmm. because we do tend to talk about the lack of representation of Mm -hmm. other cultures and you know in this region but of course my perspective and and when we talk about things like this is that I am steeped in western publishing so I mean do you think that there is a lot of sci-fi and fantasy that that we're really missing out on because the thing is i've i've only really come again uh, across like the three body problem in translation for like sci-fi elsewhere and i you know it's a shame if there is a lot of this stuff around that we just don't have kind of access to or awareness of yeah i mean i think there is it's a very interesting question um i mean like for someone f- like myself, who I am actually, I just do consider myself an Anglophone because like English is basically the only language that I'm anywhere competent in, even though I'm supposed to be bilingual or trilingual, but like, frankly, like, honestly, I can only sort of be functional in English, like with like Mandarin, for example, which is supposed to be my mother tongue. I can order food and tell the taxi uncle where to go and that's about it. 
<laughs> I can like like you know it's it's not really a functional language for me. I can understand it, I can read the news or listen to the news, but if you ask me to hold a conversation with people, I'll be like, bye, no. <laughs> uh, so I, coming from that background, um, for, like for me, I I I do also have a bias towards like um, anglophone media, which is and and in publishing, that's basically you know. Not even just like you know the UK; it's largely the US. <laughs> They're like this yes, juggernaut yeah. that's like ninety percent of all Anglophone publishing. Mm-hmm. I'm Australian, so yeah, <laughs> like we don't really feature either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like you know, you know, even like for for some of like me from Singapore, like yeah, we acknowledge that the U- UK and like Australia have bigger publishing industries than we do. And at least they kind of like sort of vaguely recognized on the world stage, but like, yeah, truly it's mostly the U S it's like New York. <laughs> yeah. That, that's where publishing is. But um, I do think that there's a lot of, I mean, like I, it's not just that I do think, I know there is a lot of stuff that's being published in, in, you know, language in other languages that's just not reaching people in the Anglophone like science fiction sphere, and so I was at um, LonCon twenty fourteen, and uh, I was at this panel, and somebody asked me this question, uh, which was, "How do you think we can make up for this sort of like U.S. centricness of publishing?" And I'm like, I don't know uh, because you know that's one thing that you know there is a lot of stuff being published internationally. A lot of it is not in English, and and therefore people are not aware of it. But also the idea that you know that things only matter when they've been translated is also kind of like a very like sort of like imperialist, like colonialist idea. So I, I really don't have a good answer to this question because I it's 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 a difficult question uh, that you know is tangled up in hundreds of years of colonialism and like new imperialism that we can't unpick so like i feel like there's sort of an ugly truth in the fact that because so much of the world like necessarily has to understand english not as a first language but you know at least have to have a grasp of english and you know consume like english language media which is largely like you know media from the u.s and the western um, hemisphere um it's really hard to say that yeah it, it, you know like we should pay attention to more stuff that's not being published uh in the western anglophone world but how you know <laughs> yeah i mean it's a good question it's just it's interesting didn't have an answer <laughs> still don't have an answer except to like you know yay more stuff should be translated more stuff should be translated in English, but at the same time, I'm also like, that's also not like a solution. And I guess the only solution to that is to break down the current world order so that it's more equitable, <laughs> which is like, that's not an answer either. Cause you know, I, I don't know. I feel like you're suggesting we should revolt. Yeah, we're calling for a revolution. Is that what's happening? <laughs> I'm just like, that's my answer. Like burn down the world order and build a new one. <laughs> Uh, to be honest, I think that's a, a fair answer. <laughs> well, I mean, sort of like going off the rails um, a, a little bit. I, I don't think that is unthinkable, seeing like the way things are going right now. Like, I, I feel like the way, you know, sort of this late stage 
capitalism and mm-hmm. it, it, it's not sustainable. So, you know, I, I honestly think that, you know, in the next 50 years or so, we might actually see sort of like a rejigging of the world order. Like if there was any time for it to happen, it might be right now. <laughs> so, Yeah, I feel you. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> okay, before we get into like the depressing state of world politics, uh, let's let's move on <laughs> because it really is just too depressing. So, when it comes to examining different social constructs of gender, like what did you hope to explore with including non-binary representation in your books? You see, that's a very interesting question because I don't think I actually set out to have these books as sort of like a gender thing. I remember at the start, it was just like an adventure with magic set in an Asian world with a pair of siblings. And then I decided like, you know, at that point uh, I was, I identified at the point as a woman and I never actually thought that I was not cisgender. And at the point, like I knew about like non-binary people, I knew that they existed. And I was just like, you know, I don't see why in this constructed secondary world, that I've built, I don't see why I should, you know, stick to the same kind of binary uh, gender systems that we have in our world. So um, when I was like kind of creating the uh, the world building for the concert series, um, I decided that there was this thing where kids would not be assigned a gender when they were born and they would sort of like pick their gender um, at some point. Uh, before they became adults and like it's sort of like a rite of passage like when you pick a gender you're sort of like uh, committing yourself to adulthood and and through that I kind of decided okay I'm gonna have non-binary characters in this book and honestly it was through writing the character of Akeha um, where I kind of realized that I was basically kind of describing my own relationship to gender and I was just like oh shit does that mean that I'm kind of non-binary? <laughs> and so that's kind of like how I wound up like sort of like declaring myself like non-binary in January, I think 2017 maybe? Has it been that long? Um, but I remember it was definitely like the January after I had finished writing Black Tides because I was just like, I had like this old shit moment when I was writing it. Um, and so like the whole gender thing became a big deal um, in in the series. Because, like, I wrote Red Threads first, and Red Threads is more like, you know, a fun sort of adventure series. But Black um, Black Tides, which is the story of Akeha, was very, very sort of, like, intimately connected to sort of, like, development of gender, which is how the series came to be known as a super gender queer series because it was, like, one of the major themes around the books. But it was not there when I originally started planning the books yeah so it's kind of organically grew up through also my own journey in gender if that makes sense it's really quite amazing that you kind of through the process of writing discovered something about yourself I I find that really awesome to be honest (laughs) so I tell people that like writing these books like literally changed my life because it kind of did (laughs) Yeah, it's amazing. So one thing I really wanted to talk to you about was the structure of your series, because when I was reading all four of them, I thought, okay, these are all profoundly different. They are 
so different from each other. And that is something very rare with series because you kind of get, you establish like the, how the rest of the series is going to go from the first book. But that is not how you do it. You like to just throw completely different things at us every single time. I mean, how did that come about? Again, I, I would say, you know, publishing is not the kind of industry which would generally allow that. Did you have to fight for that? Or was it because Tor.com is just generally open to the, trying out new things? They were like, yeah, let's go for it. Yeah, I think it, it, the, part of the of it is that, yeah, Tor.com is, publishing is, is very experimental. And also, like, novellas are sort of like having a resurgence right now. But I like with novels, I think people don't quite know what the what they are supposed to be structurally. And I think that it is a very interesting sort of arena to experiment with structure because, like, you have, a, you have, like, a much bigger canvas than you do um, with, uh, with short stories and even, um, like, novelettes. You can experiment with structure of short stories, but then it becomes, like, a super experimental short story. Um, whereas with, like, mm. with, like, novellas, you can still kind of, like, play with structure in the way that you would with a novel, but it's, like, less risky in a sense because you don't have to have the whole sort of architecture and, and heft that a novel does. So, like, you, you have, like, this sort of, like, short, small, quick, steppy stories that you can still do a lot with. So that was very interesting for me um, to experiment the structure of novellas. And honestly, I first, the first book I wrote was Red Threads, which to me has the most sort of, like, uh, traditional structure. Like, you know, it's got, like, certain acts, uh, the climax and stuff like that. So it was, like, a straight-up, like, linear narrative. And then the second book mm-hmm. I wrote was Black Tides, which... Uh, because I wanted to tell a character's backstory, um, I wanted to go go through like you know three decades of history, but within like a, like you know forty thousand words. So I knew that I was going to have to sort of structure it very differently. And how I did it was to have like four different time frames, and like I I did this thing where you know I ch- experimented with like changing the voice for each segment of Akeda's life and I thought that was like really cool and 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 fun and because I had like so much fun experimenting with like a different structure and feel for black tights as compared to red threads I was like when we approached uh Carl my editor with like let's pitch two more books I was like I wanted to do something different with each of the books. So when I pitched them, I was just like, I want one of them to be epistolary, just letters. And the other one, I want mm-hmm. it to be like a single drunken monologue. <laughs> and like, <laughs> my, by the time my editor was like, sure, let's on, I'm, I'm on board with that. Like, you know, we love the stuff that you've been doing. And like, there's uh, like, people love these books. Well, I mean, they hadn't been out. They, they weren't published, I think, by the t- when we signed uh, the contract for the next two, but they, they, you know, they already loved like the books that I had done for them. And like, you know, early readers had sort of like gotten really excited about it. Um, so they were like, sure, like, let's, let, let's experiment with these. And like the last two books were, were interesting to write. Cause like the, the loose idea I had for the structure for them sometimes didn't work. Sometimes didn't work. Like uh, I think Descent of Monsters was supposed to be just like a bunch of letters. Uh, which didn't work. Mm-hmm. I, I wrote a version that was all just letters and it was terrible. And Carl was like, no, we got to work on this. And um, yeah, originally it was just a bunch of letters from writer to Mokoya. And uh, that didn't work so well. And then I realized that like 
like I didn't really want writers to sort of be the protagonist of the story, but I wanted someone who was in the present to sort of like be telling a different story, and and then that's mm-hmm. how um, this sort of like cobbled together structure with like reports and and diary entries and letters and things like that um, came together. So it was very different from what I originally pitched, but it was also like you know. You know, like I, I was a scientist, right? So like you do an experiment, it doesn't work. So you yep. change the experiment, you like sort of modify your protocol until it works. And so that's kind of what we did with um, with the third novella. And the fourth one, um, the fourth one, the, the structure was fine. It was just like kind of fi- finding the right story to tell with it and tweaking it um, until it was like, you know, compelling and, and it made sense as a, just a straight through retelling. But it was fun, like, you know, trying something different for every book and I wasn't actually sure how people would would receive them um, because after reading the first two I I didn't know whether people would be like what is this because like you know they're not like straight sequels they don't really continue mm-hmm. the story yeah. that was being told in the first two books um, but there's kind of like side stories um, which I, I'm totally fine with um, but I was I was hoping that people wouldn't be disappointed that there was no like grand conclusion to the saga or something. And it was just like a different look into the world. Um, but people seem to have like received them well. So I'm like, okay, sure. <laughs> that worked, I guess. <laughs> I had quite a few people come and, and ask their own questions for you. So, um, which was really nice to see people reaching out. So <laughs> I had uh, from Cola Puff. said some reviewers compare the Tenshut series to a few US animated TV shows but what came to mind for me were anime series like The Twelve Kingdoms adapted from Fuyumi Ono novels and were there any anime anime series that influenced the books? Um, I don't think I could say like a specific uh, anime series influenced the book but I like I am a nerd and I love anime and um, I think it did sort of influenced like the tone of the books like there were definitely some sequences especially like more of the action sequences where I was kind of like trying to picture in my head like a fight scene from an anime (laughs) if that makes sense uh so there's no like one specific series it's just like the aesthetic but yeah I'm a nerd please (laughs) okay I think that's fine you are talking to a fellow nerd so (laughs) I wouldn't worry about it (laughs) Colourpuff also asked if there were any specific Asian stories that you did pull from when you were writing the series. Um, I don't know if there were specific stories that I actually pulled from, but I know that like the starting, the genesis of the series is I was like, I kind of want to write like a sort of secondary role fantasy that reminds me of like Journey to the West, uh, which is something that I really loved when I was a kid. But the specifics of it weren't there. It's just like, as I said, aesthetic <laughs> like you know the feel of it um yeah <laughs> so i mean i i think i mentioned journey to the west a lot in like sort of like a uh, press stuff for the ten Strip series mostly because it was something that was really formative for me just because i watched it when i was like five years old and it was like the best thing when i was five years old <laughs> so it's like something that has informed me and my life as i was growing up Fair enough. So 
with the, <laughs> I mean, we all have things like that, don't we? I mean, for me, Star Wars and Star Trek quite equally just informed everything about my life, which probably says a lot. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, I agree. It's like Star Wars and Star Trek as well, but that was like slightly later, like um, when I was old enough to read. <laughs> In the final book, that you've got Greek mythological name for the protector, Whereas everything else feels very kind of more Eastern in its inspiration. Why? Dumb answer, but I just like the sound of the name. Literally. I was just like, I'm tired of thinking of names. I like the sound of this name. This is what it's going to be. <laughs> <laughs> There's no other reason. I'm really, really bad with names and naming things. <laughs> I was just like, no, why did I create characters i haven't named them no oh so am i yeah i'm always very jealous of uh, especially fantasy writers that manage to come up with like completely um internally consistent sort of logic for the naming of their characters yeah. and come up with all this i'm just like wow amazing like for my current novel everyone just has noun names like they're just named after like rocks and pieces of military hardware and weather phenomena i'm just like there's a book of like baby names and they all have to pick from them and it's all nouns <laughs> i'm just like i'm so tired <laughs> of inventing names for characters they just have ridiculous noun names i don't care <laughs> hey i mean that's how they do it in france you have a specific list and you have to call your child something on that list so, you know, if it works for France, it can work in your book. That's what I say. Yeah. <laughs> My agent was like saying, I know you love this character named Banana, but I think that name has to go. <laughs> so I'm just like, yeah, the, the names I have picked are utterly ridiculous and I love them and I will fight him. <laughs> anyway. Okay. No, I like it. <laughs> are we going to get any more Tensorate books? Um, they're not planned at the moment. Um, so probably not. <laughs> okay. So just the four? Just the four. Yeah. Okay. I have a question from, uh, Penny Reeve, uh, who is lovely. Um, but, uh, Penny wants to know where you get all your glorious collar pins from. The internet. <laughs> <laughs> I just find them on Etsy. I follow a lot of like enamel pin artists on on like Instagram, and then they show me their wares, and then I am weakling and I buy them. <laughs> That's basically the answer. <laughs> the internet. Well, they look amazing, and for any listeners who don't know, just Google pictures of JY, and you will see these amazing <laughs> pins. Me, no. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> But they're amazing. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Is there anything you can tell us about the new novel? I've heard through the grapevine it's a mecha novel, which sounds cool. Yeah, oh, so it's I pitch it this way. It's, um, it's Joan of Arc, uh, set 10,000 years in the future, and she is a mecha pilot. So that's my pitch for the book. Um, it's, it's coming along. I wrote, I finished a draft um, in May and then I sent it to my agent and I told him I hate this draft. And he got back with like a couple of like, okay, they're small edits, like, you know, take off the first fifth of it and, and, and change bits here and there. And I was just like, that means I have to rewrite the entire novel and I'm rewriting the entire novel. And um, 
we're trying to finish it by the end of the year so we can go and sub in January. And so, yeah, that's all I can say about it. It's exhausting. You know, I thought I'd be done by now, but I'm not. And novels have so many words in them. <laughs> but yeah, hopefully we will hear more about it in the next year. Yeah. But yeah, I'm I, I'm liking what I'm writing so far. It's it's like you know it's got weird stuff, terrible world building, worst character names. <laughs> yeah, I mean you're yeah. you're really selling it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm excited to to uh, to read it. I I'm very intrigued. Uh, and I'll be looking out for any characters named Banana. Uh. Well, that's assuming that I win the fight. I may not. <laughs> Thank you so much for chatting to me. It's been awesome. Thank you for like inviting me on. It's been great. <laughs> oh, no, it's it's really good. We just like to make sure that we've, yeah, just talked to loads of different people. And I realized that we actually hadn't really had anyone on doing novellas. Cool. And that is not okay because I read a lot of novellas, but I, I've not really talked to anyone. And I'm, so glad to be the first. Thank you. <laughs> Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond, and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.